I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. It's hard to think of a more popular education policy proposal than reducing class sizes. Polls show that parents and the broader public back efforts to reduce class size by overwhelming margins. For teachers, smaller classes mean fewer papers to grade and the opportunity to develop stronger relationships with students. And there's even rigorous evidence that, at least in the early grades, being placed in a small class can have lasting impacts on student learning. But is requiring that schools reduce class sizes really a good use of educational resources? Or could efforts to do so actually have unintended consequences? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Brian Hassel, Co-Director of Public Impact, an education consulting firm that helps school districts, charter schools, and policymakers develop strategies to improve student outcomes. Along with his wife, Emily Askew Hassel, Brian is the author of a recent post on the Ednext blog with the provocative title, One More Time Now, Why Lowering Class Sizes Backfires. Brian, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks, Marty. It's my pleasure. Now, as you acknowledge with your title, this argument that you and Emily are putting forward here isn't entirely novel, but if traffic to our website is any indication, it's generating a lot of interest. So what led you to write this post? It is one of those arguments that seems to be had over and over again. And so it seemed like a good time to bring it back to the fore, though, in part because our own state, North Carolina, is in the middle of a big debate about class sizes with the legislature here, which is uh, controlled now by the Republican Party, really pressing for much lower class sizes in the early grades, K through three, with a statewide mandate for districts to get them down uh, below 20. And so it's a, it's a time here in North Carolina where it's on the agenda, and it seemed like a good time where, where other places might be thinking about it too, to put the ideas back on the table. And so the example of the North Carolina policy you mentioned is a good opportunity, I think, to walk through the basics of your argument. You're not questioning the claim that students in early elementary school at least benefit when they're placed in much smaller classes. If that's the case, why shouldn't a state legislature like North Carolina's mandate that districts create smaller classes? What could go wrong? It's a great example of a common problem, which is it could be that lower classes are all else equal, are, are really valuable. And for the reasons you set out in your introduction, Marty, uh, kids get more attention from the teacher. The teacher can really get to know each student better. You could see why that would be appealing. You could see why it would be helpful to teachers and their, and their students. But that's just if you do it in one classroom. What if you try to take it to scale across an entire state, which is what they're trying to do in North Carolina and which they've done in other states like Florida and Connecticut? That's where you really run into challenges. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one is it just is enormously expensive to reduce class size at that kind of scale. And there's uh, the question of, are there other things you could be doing with those dollars? But the one we really focus on in our blog post, Marty, is that if you lower class sizes at a large scale, one immediate effect is you have to hire a lot more teachers. And that means a couple of things. One, you have to dig a lot deeper into the teacher applicant pool to fill up your classrooms. So however many teachers you used to have to hire as a state every year, you have to go even deeper into the pool of applicants to get teachers. 
And then number two, the great teachers that you have, uh, they're going to be teaching fewer students because their classes are going to be smaller. And so both of those may be worth digging into a little more, but that's the, that's the key problem that states create when they lower class sizes across the board, the need for more teachers. Yeah, so let's talk about the increased demand for teachers. I imagine that one of the things that can play out there, and I think we have some evidence of this, in fact, playing out that way in California when their uh, state legislature effectively mandated that districts create smaller classes, is that you create a lot of additional demand for teachers in more desirable teaching locations, and that can sort of actually make it even harder for uh, schools serving more disadvantaged students to staff their classrooms. That's exactly right, Marty. There's all of a sudden you've got a whole state trying to hire teachers. And so if there are some districts and some schools that have an edge in that competition because they, they have nicer facilities or more involved families or whatever proxies teachers are going to use to decide, they're going to have an edge in that in that competition, which is going to be heightened as as as, uh, as, as districts are out to get all the teachers they can get, and that's going to exacerbate the problem. But even without that, you just got the sheer challenge of numbers. You know, we, the example we worked through in the blog is if you had an elementary school and they had 100 kids per grade, they'd need about 24 teachers if they had class sizes of 25. But if they had to drop those to 17, they would need 36 teachers. That's a 50% increase in the number. And so their district is going to have to hire 50% more teachers every year to keep that district staffed staffed up. And, and that means going far beyond uh, the, the talent pool that they now have to get. And we also hear from so many districts that they have trouble filling the slots they have with great teachers in the first place. And to, so to say you've got to dig deeper into the pool is a pretty big challenge. I think the question that people raise there is, do districts actually really have the ability to anticipate who's going to be effective in the hiring process such that having to dig deeper into the pool would really make much of a difference, or is that not the case, in which case we might not be as worried about it? Um, my guess is that when you're talking about, say, a 50% increase in the way you're talking about in the number of teachers you need to hire, that it's hard to imagine that that doesn't make any difference at all. It is. Um, you're, you're right, though. There is some evidence that most districts or many districts do a poor job of selecting teachers in the first place. There's some research about uh, California in particular where showing that when class sizes went down, districts hired about the same kinds of folks they did before. So in that case, they must not have been very selective beforehand. But I think things have changed a lot in the last several years. There's been a much bigger in focus as a, a community of, of practitioners on the importance of great teaching. And I think a lot of districts na nationwide have really tried to up their game of selection and recruitment. And so I, I think you see a different story now where you, you're doing a better job in many districts of, of selecting teachers in the first place. And certainly with that scale, I'd be concerned. Now let's talk about the second issue I ra you raised, which I think is a, a, a new issue for me. Uh, you talk about the fact that your more effective teachers, if you have smaller classes, will not reach as many students as they would otherwise. And, you know, I think extending the reach of effective teachers is something that you and your organization have paid a lot of attention to over the past several years in your work. Talk a little bit more about what you have in mind there. 
Yeah, if you take a policy across the board of reducing class sizes, that means your best teachers uh, are going to have smaller classes. They're going to have fewer kids under their supervision. And new teachers get hired to take their place. Some of them may be as good as your strongest teachers, but we know from a lot of research it's going to be hard for districts to find that caliber of teacher in the replacement pool. And so you're just effectively restricting the access kids have to the best teachers you have in a state when really it might make sense to be thinking about how can we increase access to those great teachers as a school. As you say, how can we extend the reach of great teachers to more kids? And I think by talking about extending the reach, we have a couple of things in mind. One is uh, doing what most professions do, which is taking your best professionals and putting them in charge of teams of other professionals who have less experience and less prowess and, and letting them help everyone get better and reach more of the customers or cases or patients or whatever it is that way, so leading a team. Or number two, finding ways to use technology or other means to just enable your best professionals to teach more kids in this case at a time. For example, by having high school teachers rotate every other day, having their students with them and having them down the hall with a digital learning lab where they're working on their own on personalized learning and then thereby enabling the teacher to have more students uh, under their supervision. So are there examples of school systems that you have in mind that are using these ideas or others that are alternatives to class size reduction when it comes to thinking about improving staffing arrangements? There are a number of experiments going on in this area. There are a number of districts that are part of an initiative that we're part of called the Opportunity Culture Initiative, like Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools in North Carolina and several others. They're trying to redesign schools in this way. There are also a number of new charter networks that are trying to redesign staffing in different ways as they roll out new approaches to learning and new approaches to the use of technology. So there's there's a growing but still, I think, small number of districts and schools that are trying to think differently about their talent and about how the, the top teachers in their networks are, are, are really impacting students on a bigger scale. So for schools that are trying to engage in that type of rethinking, like Charlotte Mecklenburg in North Carolina, I assume that this idea from the legislature mandating that they instead pay attention to class size reduction is creating a bit of a headache. It can create a big challenge. If you think about it, the, the class size mandate is really tying the hands of districts and schools about how people work within the building. It's basically saying this model that most schools have, where there's one teacher for each classroom, is something that you have to use, and you have to use it even more tightly than you did before. You have to have fewer kids in each one of those rooms. When really policymakers ought to be thinking, how can we make things more flexible for districts and schools? How can we let them change the way people work together in a school in ways that is, are better for kids and better for teachers. And whether that means uh, uh, changing class sizes or more likely the kind of models that I was just talking about, using teams, using leadership, using blended learning in new ways, it's that flexibility that they really need rather than a constraining mandate. Well, Brian, I just have one last question for you. We're recording this on April 3rd, 2017 a few hours before the NCAA men's college basketball tournament final between the University of North Carolina and Gonzaga. 
By the time this episode drops, we'll have a new champion. You're based in Chapel Hill. I assume you have a rooting interest in who that champion will be. Do you want to go on the record with a prediction? Obviously, the Tar Heels are going to win. And if they don't, and I'm proven wrong on this podcast a few days later, something must have gone terribly wrong. So I just say go Heels and good luck to the whole team and and Gonzaga too. Well, I encourage listeners to get in touch with Brian if they want to give him a hard time uh, if things turn out differently. (laughs) My guest today has been Brian Hassel, co-director of Public Impact. His blog post with Emily Askew Hassel on how reducing class size so often backfires is available now at educationnext.org. Brian, thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, check out our archived episodes. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.